Robert Sire's podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more than a few statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those that should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash out more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. Paul and Stuart. Yeah. Just we've just clapped in unison to symbolize right. the end of <laughs> to symbolize the end of another year of the podcast. This has been it's been four a year. four years, three years. I don't know. We started the podcast over four years ago. I guess yeah. uh it's been a long time, guys. We're going on going on four years since we released our first episode. This is of course our New Year's extravaganza or our end of year extravaganza. Paul uh Paul, what do we call this one? I do we have a name for it? Well, we had Thanksgiving. <laughs> we did not. Oh god. Chris, do we have a name for this? 2019 recap extravaganza. Right. <laughs> okay. I well, like, we, we'll we, we called the 2017 recap extravaganza and 2018 recap extravaganza, so I assume we should just continue with that okay. trend. 2019 extra extravaganza. So Paul, can you tell people what do we normally do on this show and then eventually Chris will tell them what we do on this show tonight? Yeah, you're reminding me. I'm trying to remember which episode that I just listened to where you pronounced it extravization. Extravization? Uh, <laughs> that's what all this extravaganza made me think about. Um, probably not important. <clears throat> In any case, <laughs> we, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And mispronounced um, words. Uh, well, or, and names. or pronounce them uniquely. Uh, names for sure. Um, and then we also spend a lot of time screwing around. This show is probably gonna be 90 percent screwing around i'm not really sure where to tell you to forward fast it to so you just you may well as well listen to the entire thing um but this show's a little bit different isn't that right matt we are yes it is right that's correct i'm gonna let i'm gonna let chris tell them tell them what we're gonna do on this show there will be there will be some substance to this okay there definitely is gonna be substance we're gonna be recapping things so for your space learning this is uh you know paul this we're just we're we're just doing what we're supposed to be doing as educators so this is actually the third year that I've helped with the recap show, and I'm really excited to be able to do this. So just to put it in context, we've had a really, really crazy year. We've had nearly 60 episodes produced, and we still have a whole bunch that are still in the can and, and uh, waiting to be released. Looking at our iTunes podcast charts, apparently we're ranked number four in the medicine um, category in the U.S., but we're also seeing worldwide, like United Arab Emirates, we're number nine. And we're actually number thirty-one of all podcasts in the Bahamas. So, did you check cool. Nepal? We were early yeah. on. We were really big in Nepal. We were number one in Nepal for a while. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And I'm going to predict there are exactly thirty-one <laughs> podcasts available in the Bahamas. <laughs> so, as our routine listeners know, we have not only covered a huge range of topics, but we are also recorded in a whole lot more venues this time. We have a great association with ACP. We went to their annual conference again this year, but Matt Stewart and Paul and some of our production crew were also at SGIM and newly chess this year, which was an amazing um, opportunity for us. And if you guys were following along on our social media and listened to our episodes, I think people were pleased with that. Um, and I think you guys went to Grand Rounds at Walter Reed and Uniform uh, Services University. Is that right, guys? Yes, we were there in June. And then just even more recently, uh, just a couple of days ago, we were at UPMC doing a MedEd Grand Rounds with Dr. Missy McNeil, which was which was Wonderful. great. And we have a bunch more coming up in early 2020. The Curbsider Crew Tour. <laughs> 
Yes. More and more traveling and less, you know, direct patient care. So eventually I can fulfill my dream of just making snide <laughs> remarks for a living. <laughs> so in our episode today, we're going to talk about um, some of the top five episodes that were um, voted by the Curbsider crew. Um, but before we get to that, um, do you guys have any picks of the year? Yeah, I'm going to give a pick of the year that is probably not surprising to Paul because I talked about this all the time. It My pick of the year is Point of Care Ultrasound. Thanks oh. to our wonderful right. chief of POCUS, Dr. Renee Diverstal. I went to uh, the ACP course this year, the pre-course, uh, the ultrasound conference there. That got me obsessed with it. I then bought a handheld ultrasound. Then I went to another course with Renee. She puts on an amazing conference. Uh, that that was the AIUM conference in Portland. And uh, I've been practicing lots of ultrasound, looking at lots of echoes, and I'm just obsessed with it. You can ask anyone that's worked with me. So thank you, Dr. Diverstal, uh, doing your job as the POCUS chief. And uh, everybody should try uh, to go to one of her courses. What, what a shockingly substantive pick of the week from Death Watto. <laughs> Usually it's like, I don't know, the smell of drying laundry or the love of a good woman. So like this this actually feels like a legit pick of the week. So oh, wait, no, I think it was jump rope like two years in a row, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, probably. I'm or- jumping rope right now, guys. You can you know that. <laughs> no, like I, it's I, my favorite. It was still after the jump rope was a Matt picked his wife as his pick of the week, which I thought was also. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's even funnier that you know the uh, sequence of events there. Oh, Paul. Paul, do you have a pick of week of the year, I guess? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I guess. I don't know. I, I really struggle with this one. I was trying to it's been a really good year. I think in a lot of ways it's been a really challenging year. I was trying to think of a piece of art that I kind of kept returning to. Um so <laughs> I promise this is not contrarian. I, I think my pick of the year will actually be the film Midsummer, which I had chosen before for an early episode. It's the 2019 Ari Aster film, um, which probably everybody knows about that is ostensibly a horror movie, but I think it's also very clearly about someone processing loss and grief and isolation and looking for a place to belong. And I, I actually, and for people who know the ending, they're going to think I'm a psychopath, but I thought the ending was actually kind of redemptive. Um, so I loved it. It's a, it's something that I've returned to and thought about a lot since I've seen it, which was months and months ago. So if I had to pick one, certainly not for everybody, if you've got a weak stomach or um, are not able to sit for long periods of time, don't watch it. But otherwise, I'm going to recommend Midsummer as my pick of the year. The trailer gave me nightmares, Paul. I don't know if I can watch the full thing. <laughs> it may not be for you. <laughs> you know, for kids. <laughs> Stuart, do you have a pick of the year? Chris, why don't you tell us your pick of the year first? <sighs> My Stuart's pick of like the year. looking at the wall in his office like, trying to come up with something. <laughs> well, um, my pick of the year is something that I'm going to get to, which I haven't got to watch yet, but is the new new season of The Expanse, which has just come out on No, you're not allowed Amazon. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I I take it back then. <laughs> Chris, go go on with it, please. Yes, please go on with it. Well, the first uh, I think three seasons I've um, I've watched already, and I, I've read some of the books. And the fourth season just came out, like I think maybe a week and a half ago. And because I'm busy and have kids and work, I have not gotten to it. But that is my pick of the year because I plan on watching it and enjoying it. That was my pick of the week at the live show just two days ago. Oh, was it really? Yeah, it was actually excellent. Yeah. Did you watch it? Yeah, I've I've seen all the episodes except (laughs) the last two or so. Um, I I, I really like that series. I think it's great. I do think the first couple of seasons are probably better, but that's just because it's more of like a, almost like a film noir for the first couple of seasons. I really liked it on the backdrop of like a a sci-fi backdrop, but uh, 
Yeah, I guess it's my turn, huh? Well, <laughs> did you want to just agree with Chris and we can move on? That... We have a lot of show to get to. <laughs> you know what? I think my pick of the year is actually sleep. Okay. It's uh, quite, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite straightforward. Just straight up sleep. Get eight hours sleep a night. You'll feel great. All right. And go check out our recent insomnia episode because that was a really good episode. Yeah. As well. And then get a jump rope while you're at it. All right, so we're going to get down to our top five episodes. They're in no particular order except for the the last one, which was our top pick. So the first on the list um, will be surprising to no one. It involves our good friend, the Salt Whisperer, Dr. Joe Topf, is the Hyperkalemia Masterclass episode, which was 137. I, I thought that episode, uh, there we got, I mean, just locally at Cashlack Northeast, people really love that episode. I think I like I like Joel's approach of, kind of looking for some reversible causes. He mentioned like rule out urinary obstruction, make sure the patient's not like super hyperglycemic and then try to use the kidneys to get rid of the potassium rather than the gut. But at the same time, he did he did go through all that data about SPS not really being as dangerous as most people, uh, you know, as maybe as maybe people have been led the, the, yeah, but I, I think the main point there is you can you probably don't need to be too worried about giving it to people unless they have like a really sick gut or like a bowel obstruction or something you might not want to mess around. And I think most of the patients who got into trouble with that medicine were post renal transplant. Uh, that was one of the I, I believe that was one of the case instances that he had given. Uh, I was just going to say I just want to remind people exactly what the controversy is. So SPS stands for sodium polystyrene sulfonate, and so the big issue is that um, it does con- it can cause colonic necrosis. And so some of the controversy is that, you know, some of the actual studies showing that SPS decreases potassium is not super great, but then there is sort of this low risk for colonic necrosis. So then when you're looking at the risk benefit ratio, it, um, it, for some people, the risk may be too high for the benefit. I do think that, you know, during the episode, um, Joel was able to, you know, so he gave us some sort of back of the envelope calculations and, you know, he gave like a, he said like 0.15%, exactly. um, which is very, very low. And, um, you know, he obviously uses it all the time and, you know, a lot of ED um, physicians and nephrologists use it. And I think the risk is pretty low from his standpoint, but I, it, it still is quite a bit of a controversy. You know, I've, I've gone on to like the internet book of critical care and some of the other EM guy, EM crit guys don't say that they use it. So but I th- I did feel a lot better after that episode hearing Joel's take on it. Oh, it actually the, actually that episode made me feel terrible about everything. Um, That's great. <laughs> yeah, just because like it, it, hyperkalemia, even sort of to minor degrees, like as he's going through the increased mortality as it kind of increases, like it's something to take incredibly seriously. And then also you know, the thing he covered with the using insulin and glucose at the same time is also not an entirely benign treatment. Just how often that actually uh, yeah. precipitates hypoglycemia like i it made me scared of hyperkalemia all over again which is not a bad place to be like i, I think that we should be no. so i'm grateful for that yeah that that that's one that i i had gone back and and reviewed recently and, and i just think it's just filled with like just so much practical stuff like i love the point where he's like well if someone if you want to keep someone euvolemic you can give them fluids and lasix it's one of the few times uh it makes sense to do that and then if someone's volume overloaded and hyperkalemic you can just give them the loop diuretic and kind of went through a whole bunch of different cases and even when you do shift somebody with the insulin and glucose just checking every 30 minutes for the next several hours and all sorts of just really really useful stuff so um and and i think uh Stuart, 
before we move on, did you have Amen. any specific points I, I, from that? I, the, the, the thing that I took out of it was, was uh, the insensitivity of EKGs. So this yeah. is something I've talked with the residents about. Someone comes in with a potassium like 5.8. They're like, I checked an EKG and it looked fine. I'm like, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you did that. But uh, why is it hyperkalemic to begin with? Instead of just uh, focusing on the presence or absence of any EKG changes. Um, you know, it's pretty interesting. There's a, uh, uh, I can't remember who, it's the Wave Maven. That's usually how I, how I search for it. It's about 200 cases, 200 EKG uh, cases. And the cases that they present with EKG changes uh, for hyperkalemia were with potassiums in like the eights and nines. And hopefully by that point, when if you see a potassium of, of eight, uh, I hope you're going to be doing something about it yeah. at that point instead of just, you know, oh, the EKG looks fine. So let's uh, slowly bring them down at that point. The other thing too was the, the dosing of albuterol for hyperkalemia. It, it yep. usually shocks people when you realize yeah. how much albuterol you have to give in order to cause a significant transcendence shift and so to me those then are the, it's only temporary yeah it's only temporary as well and so these are the fun things that i like to quiz people on and then you know kind of go from there um another there that that's a great point Stuart, that you brought up uh thank you for the the uh what was i going to say about that oh yeah no clue with, <laughs> no with the ekg thing the other question i like to follow that up with is like okay so a lot of people will be like, oh yeah, they had they had uh, no EKG changes. I gave them calcium gluconate, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, okay, did you give anything else? Because <laughs> yeah. I think just the, remembering the relative time about how long, like the potassium gluconate is like that's like in their system for 15 to 30 minutes, and it's really helpful if someone has EKG changes. You can give Joel said give the potassium glu or the calcium gluconate until the EKG changes resolve, and then you got to do something else to temporize like the albuterol or shifting them and then you got to get rid of the potassium so i think people just need to remember that uh just giving calcium gluconate is not gonna right you know it's not it's gonna, not gonna treat the hyperkalemia it just no. stabilizes the, the cardiac myos um, yeah the cardiac membrane and, and i think it's most helpful when someone actually you, you know when someone has ekg changes you have to keep giving it until they go away yeah and that uh site is through harvard and it's the the uh, Wave Maven ECG um, uh, case log, it's actually 511 cases now. So wow. this is what we studied in residency. We had to go through all these cases like uh, once at least. And at that point, I don't think I had 511 cases. But uh, this is the, I don't know, I found it to be one of the most useful ways to study EKGs. So the next one is a much more recent episode. It was num number 181, the Multimorbidity Games with Josh Wee, is that right? Yep. And it was written by Nora Toronto and Leo Witt. Um, I really thought it was a, an excellent episode. I, I Honestly, I thought it was a game changer because I think a lot of people don't think about practicing medicine this way. I was really struck by the grasp that Dr. Wee had on terms of the evidence behind sort of what he was talking about. And I think he used the literature in an incredibly thoughtful um, and yet still very patient-centered way. And specifically, the... The time to benefit is a concept I had sort of a vague idea of. I, I kind of sort of thought, but hearing it sort of put concretely, and here's how many years it actually takes for this to actually show any kind of benefit, and then putting that in relation to the patient in front of you, I thought was a particularly helpful way to kind of conceptualize what medications mm. and modalities are useful for patients at for whatever given point in their life might be. So I just I, I found the whole thing a really thoughtful and helpful framework in terms of taking care of my older patients. Now, one thing I was when I was going through the show notes, I was trying to. I was reading through, and it said something about disappointing the right people. Does anyone remember exactly what that what we were meant by that? 
he you want to disappoint the right people <laughs> he was talking about an instance where he was putting in really long hours and oh, yeah. his wife when he came home he said That's he just right. said his wife gave him some great advice and she said just remember that you you want to make sure that you're disappointing the right people and right. since then he's kind of remembered that he always wants to try to put his family first and uh you know if if some people at work are disappointed that he's not putting in as long hours as they'd like him to then you know he's okay he's okay with that yeah that's right i remember that i i think one thing i really got this episode from him was he just had like such quotable and like phrases and ways of saying things that I thought were super helpful as a, like a practicing clinician. Yeah. He was talking about when he's trying to set his agenda, you know, obviously like we just talked about what's the most important thing to you and how do you want to spend your time in order to set your agenda for the, for the appointment? Uh, things like well, de-emphasizing the fact that lots of care isn't always good care mm-hmm. and trying to like, you know, reprioritize uh, the patients at the same time being very respectful to um, what their wishes are. Um, I, and I also re, I have to reiterate what Paul said in terms of like his his clear grasp of the evidence. I mean, if you go back to our show notes, I think he gave us some some really cool tables looking at very common problems like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, looking at, and just sort of framing in terms of outcomes, number needed to treat, time to benefit, and risk, and using those to your benefit to talk to patients. I think was a very important thing. And those are things I've actually used with my patients when I'm trying to explain to them the limitations on things like um, statin therapy for primary or secondary prevention, you know, if I'm talking to a 92-year-old gentleman or lady, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being frankly honest with him saying, I don't know what the evidence is specifically for you, but I do know what it is for, for younger individuals. And if we were to extrapolate some of that, there is evidence that suggests that you may not benefit as much as you think, and that we may be causing more harm than good. And I've done that with several different medications to, and help to de-prescribe, at least to to uh, be frankly honest about where the limitations of the evidence are, instead of uh, trying to um, just allow medical inertia to take place, where medications continue to be added on and on and on at that point. I also thought it was kind of interesting, this is kind of a, a, a sidebar issue, but it seems like we had a, a little bit of a theme there for a, a little bit with the the multimorbidity, sarcopenia, and longevity episodes. I, I just thought it was an yeah. interesting little little thing we had going on. Yes. I, I actually had planned to release them in three weeks in a row. And then uh, we, we went to chest and some other things. So it, it didn't work out that way, but that was, that was, that was intentional. But the, the, the thing that I think that we're all talking about the way that Dr. Wee looks at the literature and pulls out the number needed to treat the time to benefit. I think more, I, I wish that would numbers would be rep- reported this way. You often have to do the yep. calculations on your own, right. and numbers are reported in a way that I think are not as practical as the way that this approach that he's laid out for us. Um, one of the websites that he plugged was the nnt.com, which has done some of these calculations. Like you can look yeah. up statins and you can look up warfarin for AFib and, and, and a couple other things like that. So I would I would tell people to check out that website. And when you're reading the literature, try to calculate number needed to treat, number needed to harm, look at how long was the study and what were, were these patient-centered outcomes? Like, did it take them five years? In five years, if there was a mortality benefit, then, you know, use that when you're talking to your patient about this. If they don't have a life it's... expectancy of that long, then it might not benefit them. And the other thing too, if you talk about the opposite, say you have a 
And this does require some calculation, but if you look at like a number needed to treat of 300 to see a benefit in one year, and the patient's like, well, what's the per- what's the chance that I will see a that I will see a benefit from you? Like, well, 0.3%. And if you say, well, what's the chance that I won't see a benefit from it? It's like 99.7%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, Framing, okay, yeah. well, maybe I shouldn't take it. Well, it's up to you. If you want that 0.3% chance of seeing the benefit from it. Right. Yeah. I think as as clinicians, we 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 understand this a lot, and we I think we talk about it with patients more often with like cancer screenings because that's majority of what we do in terms of counseling. But I don't think we as clinicians have a lot enough practice talking about hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and those other types of problems the same way. And one of the things I I try to discuss with the residents is that statistical difference is not clinical difference make. So just because you see a study that has a statistical difference, you need to say, well, what does that actually mean for my patients? And framing that in in a way that's meaningful to your patients, if you can explain statistics to someone with an average uh, education, let's say a seventh or eighth grade education, then um, you've made it because you can at least explain to your patients what this means from their perspective. That may be difficult, but you might want to try it. I, I know... I, I've got kind of a leg up because I've got older kids and I've had to explain what these statistics mean to them. And so like, it's almost like practicing talking to patients. At the same time, you know, if you, if you have a college education or even post like a postdoc, you still may have to be able to explain statistics to people. I mean, I don't really know statistics well, so <laughs> just keep that in mind as well. So that's why we're doing hotcakes, Chris. We're, yes. we're, we're practicing in front of, <laughs> in front of our audience. And we have Raul to help us. That's right. Exactly. That's why That's why we had to get someone with real chops and uh, stats and epidemiology. What, should we move on to the next? Because we, we do have a lot left to, to go through. All right. So on to number three um, is number another actually very recent episode is number 187 uh, about buprenorphine masterclass, managing opiate use disorder for the general internist with Dr. Michael Fingerhood, produced by Dr. Justin Burke and Joseph Mueller. Yeah, Sefi. He goes by Sefi, I believe. Sefi. Yeah. This was one of Paul's favorite episodes, I think. He just I, loves the foil. Oh, well, yeah, the foil is a great trick. Yeah, and, and worth mentioning. So I, I'll, I'll jump right in. So oftentimes we have our patients um, take a partial dose of a uh, buprenorphine film. And one of the tricks the doctor uh, Finger had mentioned is actually instructing the patient to keep the film in the foil when they cut it so that they, the film itself is not degraded by being handled. And I just thought that was so ingenious and so practical. I was doing cartwheels after the episode. So I, I like that particular trick. I, my favorite thing to talk about with bup right now, probably because it comes up a lot in the hospital, is, is perioperative medicine. And I yeah. think there, there's three options that I'll remind people about that we talked about pretty we, – we went through it quickly, so I think it's worth going through again. Dr. Dr. Fingerhood commonly would stop the buprenorphine the night before surgery, like the last dose would be that evening, and then the next day he'd put them on a full agonist, something like hydromorphone or morphine, uh, throughout the surgical period, and then as soon as their post-surgical pain's a little bit better, he might put them back on their buprenorphine. The, the other two options that were proposed were to keep them on the bup and just do the full agonist therapy on top of the buprenorphine. Uh, you might have to use slightly higher doses than you're used to because bup has a stronger affinity for the opioid receptors and it's only a partial agonist. And then the third option is you might just give, instead of giving like eight milligrams twice a day, because bup has analgesic effect for six to eight hours, you might give eight milligrams three times a day. And for some patients that might 
might do the trick uh, perioperatively. I guess it just depends on how painful the surgery is and who who the patient is. Uh, so I thought those were all like really good options. Um, and I like the two, personally, I like the two where you don't stop the buprenorphine because then you don't have to worry about precipitating withdrawal when you restart it if they've been on a full agonist. And I think in our show notes, we do reference the article for, from uh, the th- things we do for no reason from our Journal of Hospice Medicine um, colleagues. Um, and they in that article, they do recommend not stopping buprenorphine. Um, so I want I want everyone to go back um, and if they're interested, they can find find those links in our show notes for that episode. Yeah, there, there are a lot of good points in this one. And a lot of them were sort of um, talking about taking away stigma uh, and taking away judgment from treatment as well, which I liked a lot. I thought that just Dr. Finger had a lot of excellent role modeling and how to discuss um, this particular issue. And I, two more points that I, I liked a lot were diversion is always the fear that kind of keeps people from prescribing. It, it seems to be you're just worried that what if heaven forbid, what if Suboxone ends up in the hands other than your patient? But the fact of the matter is, is even though diversion happens, it's usually not for uh, abuse. It's it's to prevent withdrawal. Patients are taking it to keep from getting sick. And so it's not like it's being um, used for some dubious uh, amoral reason. It's, it's actually being used to actually treat the illness that we're trying to treat, if that makes you feel any better. And I, I think that it kind of should. And then the other issue is um, talking about the use of urine drug testing and urine toxicology, and that a, a positive drug test for an illicit substance, I don't even think illicit is the right word, but a positive test is not a contraindication to treatment. It is actually a chance to have a conversation to to best discuss how you're going to treat moving forward. So I, I really thought the whole conversation was respectful and thoughtful and kind of helped take away some of the stigma and sort of nervous around prescribing. I don't know if, Matt, if you felt that way too. I, I did. I, I he, he talked about, he, t- he tells patients, he uses the language, I'm the newest member of your fan club. He talks about partnering with patients. And as uh, Paul, as you and I were talking about the other day, we've even just just on the show come a very long way from having never prescribed bup probably about two years ago to now prescribing it on a regular basis. And just the, the language and the whole approach to opioid use disorder, something that's just completely new uh, to me. And I do think it's one of the most more rewarding things that I've got to start doing in the practice of medicine because... Um, especially when you look at it as an alternative to the way that I was initially taught to think about this or, and maybe that was my, yeah, I, I, I think just thinking about it this way, partnering with these patients instead of being opposed to them is just so refreshing. Yeah, exactly. This, when you and I were in training, the sense of futility you felt sometimes, um, it was just, it was demoralizing and not great for patient care. And I, I feel like just the way that this has evolved has been, I think one of the best things that I've seen in the time that I've been practicing medicine. I, th- I think to reiterate sort of what, what Paul just said about, you know, not trying to be punitive with urine toxins and making, uh, um, having a positive be just a, a point of being able to talk to the patient more is the fact that now we look at opiate use disorder. It's a disease, just like diabetes and hypertension is. When you have a patient with diabetes come in, the A1C comes in at 10, you don't be like, well, I guess you didn't make it. We're going to cut off your insulin. You know, you're not going <laughs> to, right? It doesn't make any sense. So if you have a U-tox that comes positive for other substances that you're not prescribing, it just means that this is a person who you need to treat. This is someone you need to to treat so that they don't overdose, that they don't ha- that they are not stigmatized anymore, that they trust you. And I think um, those are some great takeaways that I had from that episode. Beautifully said, Chris. Let's go to number 142, cirrhosis tips. 
Yeah, this was about uh, ab- acute complications of cirrhosis with Scott Matherly. It was produced by you in Nora Toronto. I I don't remember producing it, but I probably <laughs> I probably did. <laughs> I probably did. I feel like Justin may have been involved. Uh, Justin Burke may have been involved in this one too. But I I honestly I don't even remember. There's so many, too much going on this year. This is a massive episode. I share this all the time with my residents. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, share, it was a very ambitious script. Uh, <laughs> it was a very <laughs> ambitious script because we went through like variceal bleeding and SVP and coagulopathy. And the point that I remembered about platelets on this one that I thought was great and and fairly easy to remember is if 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 a patient with cirrhosis comes into the hospital, they're admitted, they're not there for bleeding. And they have platelets more than 50,000, regardless of what the INR is, you should put them on DVT prophylaxis because the INR is not a good measure of whether they're coagulopathic uh, and more, whether they're more bleedy or anti-bleedy, as Dr. As Dr. Uh, Matherly said on air. So, so you, should, you should put these people on DVT prophylaxis, if, of course, if they're bleeding out. Uh, don't do it regardless of what the platelets are. But if they're above 50,000, you can you can put them on it. I think one of the pearls that was for SBP was when you do your diagnostic tap, culture the fluid in blood culture vials. I don't think I've ever done that before hearing about it here. I don't know if other people traditionally do it, but maybe I just, maybe just something that I wasn't aware of. It's not something I was aware of either. No, no. And I also, I, and I, I love the way the Dr. Madley beats this drum is just if you're thinking about tapping, just tap like it, the, the mortality associated with SPP is so high. If you have any suspicion at all, you almost have to chase it down first. So yeah. just don't don't hesitate if that's anywhere on your differential. And I, um, I, I think he even went as far as saying that the, the manifestations of SPP are protean. So pretty much any patient with cirrhosis admitted to the hospital, you probably you almost need to think of a reason not to at least do a diagnostic tap on them. Yeah, because most of the patients aren't going to have like peritonitis and like high fevers and and look terrible. Like they they could they could look like anything. One of the other things that Doctor Matherly he said this on both. Uh, well, we've done three episodes about cirrhosis with him, and he said it on uh, he said it on several episodes. Do not check an ammonia level in patients with cirrhosis. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis. If you suggest doing it on rounds, he will hiss at you like a cat. <laughs> and and he did say that if, if it's a patient with undifferentiated encephalopathy, altered mental status, you don't know if they have cirrhosis, checking an ammonia can be a reasonable thing to do. And then if someone has like a Tylenol overdose, I think that was one of the other times you could check it. But largely it's a t- clinical test that is hard to interpret, hard to transport and do correctly. And you're you're using it for something that is a clinical diagnosis. I would love for someone to just videotape like a student talking about checking an ammonia score on rounds with him I, just to see him hiss. <laughs> uh, so students at uh, VCU, if you happen to be working with Dr. Matherly, please do it as a joke and have one of your classmates videotape you. And then uh, you could tell, tell him that we told you to do it. Yeah, and if he hisses, maybe we can even play it. <laughs> it, it could be the new meme. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that that episode is just it's just packed. So uh, definitely go back and listen to that one as well. Chris, what is our these rankings were from our staff? Is that correct? That's right. Uh, that's right. Um, the, this, um, these these top five came from votes from the entire curbside crew of I've those voted. who. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
but you get to have some, uh, you can, you can pick some of your other favorite ones after this, but so based on our votes, our number one, most favorite episode, which I had the great pleasure of being able to watch live because we, we recorded this at ACP was the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction with Dr. Clyde Yancey is produced and written by Dr. Paul Williams, uh, Sarah Phoebe Roberts with assistance of show notes by Justin Burke and Beth Garbatelli. So what were you guys' favorite parts about this episode? My outfit. Dear God. Oh, he, he, I forgot. He, he was so scared of you. Does anyone remember what, what, what Stuart was wearing? Oh, clearly. Yeah, vividly. So it's for, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Yancey has a presence about him, a gravitas that is almost really hard to explain. He walks into a room, he commands attention. You, you want his respect. You want him to, to think that you're doing good work just immediately as soon as you meet him. And he walks into the room and there's Stuart wearing his red curbsider shirt, a necktie. There's no shirt over the curbsider shirt. It's important to mention that. It's a necktie, a t-shirt. I think there was a hat with stickers on it, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, a fedora. Um, <laughs> a fedora. And then also, I believe, Stuart's best pink pants, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yes. Yeah. So it's at the Dr. Yancey's first words, he walks in the room, we think, my God, I'm in the presence of a true clinician. And his first words were, I'm scared of this guy, pointing directly <laughs> at Stuart. So that was, that was the context for the starting of this amazing episode. I'm surprised we actually got anywhere, but somehow we did. I think he wanted you know, to leave immediately. I, I was just like, I was trying to keep him there, and I'm so glad he stayed. <laughs> and Dr. Yancey, if you are uh, listening, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk, talk, Paul was saying how he's got this great gravitas. He also speaks a very, like, soft, like, he's got such a very soft uh, voice as he's talking. And it was really fun to watch you guys talking, because you guys were around the table. And as he was talking... Uh, throughout the episode, everyone was moving closer and closer to the mic, just more towards them. It was just like, it felt really intimate watching. So I, I, I'm not sure how much of that uh, went through for people listening to the episode. Um, <laughs> but it was it was really great to, to listen and watch it at the same time. And I think one more peek behind the curtains, just as we talk about the, the substance of this. So when we put together sort of a loose script or an outline of how we're going to talk about things, one of the things that we sometimes do is actually intentionally make a mistake so that we can be corrected to make a teaching point. And I think we started right out the gate. I I wanted him to clarify the difference between diastolic dysfunction and heart failure preserved ejection fraction. And I felt so aggressively smacked down in a way that made me want to crawl under the table and die because that was just like, yes, that was the mistake that I wanted to make out loud. But boy, I, I just sure felt it when he was clarifying it because again, that's just the kind of weight that he holds behind what he says. He was perfectly nice about it, but I also felt like a moron, even though that was exactly what I was trying to accomplish. In a, in a similar vein, I I th- I was like, so uh, heart failure pre- preserved ejection fraction. It's all about hypertension and LVH, right? And he <laughs> and he then he then quickly told me to stop talking and uh, <laughs> proceeded to tell us about how it's it, there's there's inflammation, there's fibrosis, there's a complex pathophysiology. It's definitely not just hypertension, and I I thought that uh, a, another great point that he made was when talking about the gray zone, uh, the 40, 40 to 50%, uh, patients with EF, uh, you know, below 40% have reduced ejection fraction and they have HEFREF. So we treat them as such. But if they're in the gray zone, it's, you, you, you don't, you need to figure out where they ever, did they ever have a reduced ejection fraction? Because if they did, you should make sure they remain on the meds that you would give someone for systolic heart failure. And that comes up not infrequently, 
because you'll see patients where their their EF was 25% at some time and now it's 40 or 45%. And you should not let up on those medications because he made the point that the patients may start to slide back into systolic failure if you do so. Now that we we actually have some updates from that episode, right? I think Matt, you you brought up that we have the results of Paragon HF. Sure. What which are unfortunate. Yes, it is. It's, there was so Paradigm HF was the Sacubitril Valsartan. So it's a it's Paragon HF, right? No, but I, I'm just saying the first one. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yes, Parad- yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, this they they had to name them both with like yeah, Paragon Paradigm. Okay, so Paradigm HF was the original, and that was in systolic heart failure, and that was where they added this Sacubitril Valsartan to uh, standard heart failure therapy and showed that there was still a mortality benefit. And I think it was maybe something like 30% of decreased cardiac uh, mortality from cardiovascular causes, something like that. Don't quote me on the exact numbers. But then they tried the same thing in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. That was And that was the Paragon HF trial. And it was just reported in the fall. And unfortunately, their primary endpoint, which was Heart failure hospitalization or death from cardiovascular causes. They did. They were not able to show a a benefit with those endpoints. Um, people were hopeful that just because it seemed like the mech, they were actually almost directly addressing some of the mechanisms of the pathophysiology of HEFPEF, but it didn't didn't work out. So we're still kind of stuck with not, really not any evidence-based therapies that are going to in- improve mortality other than like all the lifestyle stuff and treating comorbidities. Which is so, I don't know, it's, to me it's, it's frustrating because the mortality for HEFPEF is not insignificant. So we have things to reduce mortality for HEFREF, but it, it, it's almost like, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I didn't realize HEFPEF was, I, I, I almost thought it was a, a continuum at first. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it, to be honest. I, I think my favorite thing about this episode is actually the, the infographics, to be honest. Oh, they're amazing. Uh, those have got to be the best infographics I've ever seen for our show. And they're I, beautiful. And they're Beth, Garb- Beth Garb's Garbatelli they, did those. And it, it, I mean, it just it blows my mind. Like, look at the sources at the bottom of the second page. And it's just, I, I, it's, it's wonderfully done. The whole thing is just wonderfully done. I mean, this is very professional. I just, I go look at them if you haven't seen them. <laughs> Beth, Beth is a Beth is a medical student in Boston, and I don't know if she wants me to say where, but she's a medical student, and she puts together these essentially they're visual summaries, and they're always this beautiful color scheme with pictures, and they they pretty much summarize the entire episode. She did it recently yeah. with with GERD and dyspepsia as well. And she's done it with a bunch of other ones. I can't remember all yeah, the, the buprenorphine the ones are hers too, right? Yeah. Hannah did. Hannah did the buprenorphine well, one. Oh, but Hannah sorry, did a sorry. yeah. Hannah did the buprenorphine one. Uh, but yeah, we have uh, pointing out Chris that we have lots of great artists that work with us uh, who are talented, and some of whom happen to be medical students. Yeah, they've probably got to. They've got to be like all star medical students. I can't imagine what. It's, I yeah. Know. So I would say that it's fair to say that we would love to have Dr. Yancey back in 2020 to talk a little bit more about heart failure. I know that we we had a brief recording with him, but I think there's a lot more to talk about. Maybe we could do just sort of a, you know, more more about heart failure. You can tell us what else is coming out and we could talk about 
anything, any updates on Heart Failure, we would always love to talk with you about that. So anything else? No, I think I think we should talk about. I I, I had a couple other um, just kind of points from some of the other episodes that we went through. I don't know if you guys want to go around, Chris, or what you had next on the agenda. Yeah. So I mean, we just had. You know, like I said, we had nearly 60 episodes already already produced from the year. You know, we have, you know, of course, my baby, the hotcakes. We have, you know, the Women in Medicine series, which has been fantastic. We did a whole thing with Deaf Madness. You know, we have a couple in the Things We Do for No Reason series. We had some healthcare policy. We have our whole series with ACP on the I Am Power about how to be a PGY1, PGY2, PGY3. You know, we've had all our live shows. We have lots of things that we can talk about that uh, were our favorites from the year. Uh, one of Chris, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was just about pain because I, it's something that I think about a lot, a lot because it's just really difficult to treat. It's difficult to work with these patients, and I, I feel bad for them. So I'm always wanting to do better in that regard. We talked with Dr. Lanscron, Dr. Sophie Lanscron, fr- about sickle cell. There's a population of sickle cell patients in the Northeast uh, that I occasionally will see at Cashlack. And she talked about her approach where she's giving IV pushes in this urgent care center that they have and then putting people on a bolus dose of a PCA. And then they put naloxone in the PCA to cut down on the itching. And then she goes uh, up for the first 24 hours. She finds a dose that works and then lets it ride for 24 hours. And then at 48 hours starts to taper patients. I thought that was a really helpful framework. Anyone who's taking care of patients with that uh, pain sickle cell pain that was that was really helpful and then another thing on pain we talked to dr soraya azari and dr phoebe cushman at sgim and we talked about people on chronic opioids and i think this can't be said enough that we we know how to prescribe opioids not everyone is wavered to prescribe the treatment of opioid use disorder and there Anytime you prescribe opioids, you're at risk for kind of finding that someone's going to develop an opioid use disorder. And tapering patients, once they've been on chronic opioids, is something that has to be done really thoughtfully. And they told us that it was 2 to 10% per month that they, they go down on the dose. So let's say someone's on 300 milligram morphine equivalents. You might go down by 30, 30 milligrams per month or even less than that. And you got to check in with the patient monthly. And if the patient tells you they're not doing well, then you might have to slow down and stall there. So if someone's on 300 milligrams, it might take you months or, or more than a year to taper someone off opioids. And the after that episode, I found the CDC actually has this guide. Uh, it's a pocket guide for tapering chronic opioids. And they recommend going down by no more than 10% per week, but you really have to check with patients and, and follow their symptoms. So I, I don't think... I was ever taught that, and I, I, I literally think I just learned it in the past, like, eight months. Yeah. So I, I, I can't uh, – maybe we can link to the, the CDC guide, or, or people can just listen to that episode. Uh, it's a tough thing to do, and you really have to work with the patients to get them through it. Does anybody else have any other episodes they want to bring up that we didn't talk about in, our, in the I top think, five? I think my favorite episode was 157, Teaching in the Hospital yeah. with uh, – yeah, with Doctor Weiss, um, I just as a as a physician educator, it was. I mean, I I just I love that episode. I think it's great. Um, very practical tips about rounding, about how to make it useful, 
And the other thing I like, I, I like the other thing I like is uh, a little self-aggrandizing. He now has a fourth D, so that's great. <laughs> I I was really happy for you, Stuart. I'm pretty sure yeah, no. that's going to get published in his in his next <laughs> in his next book. And he we are we are in talks with him. We're planning that we're planning to have him back as well in 2020. Hopefully, we'll be able to get our schedules to align, but. I think we we had a lot of fun recording with him. The audience, we had a lot of great feedback from the audience, and we one of a, one of the missions of the show moving forward will be to keep doing faculty development yeah. episodes. Uh, what was is, that? What, what speaking of which, uh, I, I, I guess I'll let you finish that point. Go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Finish your point. I was nearly done. So we we will keep we will keep making more faculty development episodes moving forward because all of us are clinician educators. We want to do better at that job, and we want to make sure we make this easy to access for all sort for everybody, our listeners as well. So, I wanted to ask you, Matt, what was that quote that he had about hand sanitizer again? He, I don't remember the exact quote, but I what what cracks me up about it is he's talking about how he thinks of it as like a genuflection. You're entering the patient's room, that sacred space, and that he hopes they have little cuts on their hands and hangnails so that it's <laughs> so that it stings and burns when they have to wash their hands. <laughs> Paul, I don't know if you remember any any further than that, but that was that's no, to my memory I mean, that's what he said. That's exactly right. Like but it's I mean to the larger point that taking care of patients is a privilege and it's right. like he's actually sort of talking about the ritual of going to take care of a patient and then you should actually feel it when you go and actually see someone like it should be something that you kind of mark in your mind is something that you're doing that's important. And the pain is actually to remind you of that. So it's really more broadly about institutional culture. So I, that entire episode I loved. So I was, if Stuart hadn't mentioned it, I was going to. Chris, we did, we did two episodes with, we, we have a new chief of perioperative medicine, Dr. Avi Oglasser, who is just, you know, she's, what can I say? She's wonderful on Twitter all the time. And she sent, she sent us a quote uh, of Dr. Williams. Did you want to read it to the audience? I think it's a good quote, and you could maybe you could put it in context for them. You want you want me to read yeah. it? Yeah, and do it specifically oh. in my voice. That would be really that'd be great for me. It'd be funny if Paul read his own quote. I was just I was just going to play the clip from the episode. Oh, you have the clip. Oh, yeah, that's even better. Because oh. <laughs> there's there is uh, there is absolutely no way I can can read it as well as Paul said it during the episode. I'm not even sure if it's worth saying out loud, but it's I, I think. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I just, you know, we, we talk about, you know, burnout or, you know, emotional exhaustion or however you want to phrase it a lot. And I, I feel like the message that we sometimes send out to especially our trainees is you have to be the best doctor you can possibly be, but it's important to take time for yourself and also maintain one of your hobbies. But you got to exercise, make sure you sleep enough, but go and pet your dog. But take good care of your patients. You have to pass the boards. Did you write up that abstract? But please make sure that you're taking care of yourself and do at least two things that you really, really love. Make sure that you do them well. And I think like we just... I think you have to kind of choose your battles at a time. There's there's time where you can expand your interests, but especially in training, I don't think that you can do all of the above. And I'm not sure if that's the, the exact message that you're conveying, which is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I Paul, I, I agree that when when Chris told me that she was talking about a quote you made, I I thought this was what she was going to be talking about because it stuck out to me too. And I think it's it's a great point. You, Paul, you know me well enough to know that I'm, I drive myself crazy with this kind of thing, so it, it helps to hear you say it. I was shocked they said, go and pet your dog, and he has no dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, which really fundamentally negates the entire point I was trying to make, so it's, it's, it's a shame. Not only did Avi w- recommend that quote, she also has a couple words for our audience for this recap as well. 
Hi, Curbsiders. This is Abhipal Oakglasser. I am thrilled to have been appointed as the Honorary Chief of Perioperative Medicine at Cashlack Memorial Hospital and record two episodes with you in this past year. One of my other highlights was the Neff Madness episode on pain medication in CKD. It was episode 146, specifically Dr. Gerlich's Pearl about Tramadol. Uh, there's a line in the episode comparing Tramadol to a, a moody, sullen teenager, but the, the the teaching from that episode has really stayed with me for the rest of the year, and I've really incorporated it into my practice. I've shared it with colleagues, and just the learning that certain patients might met- metabolize tramadol or codeine uh, differently and actually have a narcotic effect on board or have other symptoms has been invaluable for making patient-centered decisions, counseling patients when they actually said that they did, uh, have done poorly on those medications, and just having really robust, thoughtful conversations with colleagues, especially in the perioperative space, as we choose safe analgesic options for patients with and without CKD. Uh, it was great to connect with the curbsiders this year. Happy 2020. There's just no one better. She is <laughs> this is my absolute favorite, just an endless supporter of all things and everyone in medicine, and she's... Yeah, she's the best. She's got more, more enthusiasm and energy for everything that she does more than anyone else that I know. I, I actually went to undergrad with, with Avi, and so she has always been like this. So we got a couple of voicemails, and I, I wanted to share them with everyone. So the next one is from Kimberly Manning, who was our great guest on one of my hotcakes episodes about imposter syndrome. Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Manning. Um, I'm a general general internist slash hospitalist at Emory in Atlanta, and I had the pleasure of being on the Curbsiders on a Hot Takes and Hot Cakes episode a few months ago. Um, 2019 was uh, a year of connectedness and identity for me. Um, I think my highlight is going to be really around how Twitter and MedTwitter have built connections that have moved from virtual to real-life connections, how podcasts and Twitter chats have enhanced my micro-learning and broadened my community. And then from an identity standpoint, um, when I was on the show, I talked a lot about the imposter syndrome and how it greatly affects the way that we move forward in leadership roles and the things we try to do or put our name in the hat for. And um, I think that um, this year in particular, I've noticed that more people are showing up as their authentic selves. Um, in my work as a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, I'm excited to just see more people standing up as their authentic selves, whether that be Black or whether that be Pakistani, Latinx. Um, gender queer, whoever you are, that ha- is proving to be enough, and we're coming out in the open and letting people see who we are, which I hope ultimately will diminish the imposter syndrome um, even more. And that had a lot to do with, with the paper that I discussed. Really excited about 2020. Love the Curbsider Show, and can't wait to see what y'all do in 2020 and beyond. Thank you so much. Bye. So, Paul, Paul, what were your thoughts um, from what Kimberly had said? I mean, she's also amazing. Like, it's it's so boring just to kind of hear endless praise. But I, it's, I think one of the best parts about being part of the Curbsiders is being exposed to so many remarkable people, not that are just sort of part of the show on a week-to-week basis, but also the guests. And, and I think Dr. Manning is certainly 
way, way up there. Just a, an amazing human being who's really trying to humanize medicine and sort of um, make it make, make it so that we can practice it in a sane way that does not actually destroy ourselves. So I, I just think she's remarkable, and that was a really great episode. And of course, um, yeah, I have nothing else intelligent to add, I don't think. All right, so we have a couple more um, sound bites from our colleagues and friends from the Curbsiders, and I'll play these now. Hi, I'm Beth Garbatelli. I help out on the um, Instagram, social media for the Curbsiders and on a couple of episodes. Um, One of my favorite episodes from this year was uh, Medicine and Incarceration, episode 158. And I just felt like it shone a light on a really important um, um, area that we don't always think about in medicine. And that can be sometimes the the effects of incarceration on a person's health. And I, I thought it was really interesting to hear more about some of the chronic health conditions as well as learn a little bit about the kind of medical care people receive in, in jails and prisons, as well as some of the risks they may face um, as they transition out of, out of prison care. Greetings, everyone. This is Emmy Okamoto. I'm calling in from Cambodia, where I work as an editor for those weekly show notes. Thank you all for subscribing. I remember episode 153 where Dr. Noel Barry Mertz talks about the importance of following guidelines so that we can overcome our own implicit biases, here talking specifically about how we approach heart disease in women. Also, episode 181 when Dr. Joshua Wee quotes, you teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are talking about the importance not only of teaching but looking at who we are and how we act and being the best role models that we can be. So myself and all the animals I cohabitate with wish you a very warm and love-filled holidays. Hey, this is Cyrus Askin from San Antonio, Texas. I've been with the Curbsiders as a producer since the summer of 2017. My favorite episode of the year would be Heart disease in women that was recorded at ACP. And favorite pearl would just be a reminder that heart disease presents very differently in women than it does in men. Um, and that we should be aware of Minoka as a cause for heart disease in women. Hello, this is Elena Gibson. I help with the other Curbsiders team members to produce episodes and help with graphics. And my pearl this year was from episode 159 entitled Atrial Fibrillation with Dr. James Ferguson. And I found it very helpful to hear him talk about how we should remember to consider the modifiable risk factors for AFib in our patients. I found it helpful to bring these up, including weight and alcohol use, and discuss these factors with patients so they feel some investment in making those changes, too. Hi, I'm Hannah Abrams. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Cashlack College of Medicine. Uh, one episode I really enjoyed this year was the wound care show um, with Dr. Foy White Chu. And I really appreciated the way she uh, listed out an an organization for describing a wound. So she starts with the location, then she describes the peri wound, then the wound edge, then the bed, and then the drainage. So hopefully that's helped me sound a little bit smarter this year. This is Justin Burke. I'm one of the producers for the Curbsiders. And one of the pearls that I remember was back from early the sickle cell episode with Dr. Sophie Lanscron and the concept of using a Narcan drip, a low-dose um, Narcan drip to help address opioid-induced itching, uh, a great pearl. 
Hi, this is Dr. Kate Grant. I work in primary care and emergency medicine in the UK, and I've got a special interest in sexually transmitted diseases. As well as contributing a few scripts this year, I'm on the graphics team, and the title page artwork you might have seen for several of the episodes is painted by me, usually while listening to Curbsiders episodes or audiobooks. My favourite episode this year was number 138 about inflammatory bowel disease with Dr. Adam Ehrlich of Temple University Hospital. I found the diagnostic information really insightful, especially in relation to using fecal calprotectin as a measure of GI tract inflammation. I didn't actually realise it was also positive in gastroenteritis prior to this episode. So we use this test a lot in the UK in primary care. So, you know, those sorts of information is really helpful when explaining to patients. I think there are a few things that stand out for me, you know, in my career and using fecal calprotectin is kind of as big as um, Helicobacter pylori and the advent of PPI. So it's just a really great test and I really enjoyed listening to Dr. Ehrlich talking about this in this episode. This is Molly Hoibline. I'm a Curbsiders contributor and I've been really excited to work with the team again this year. We've had some really wonderful episodes. I have two that were my favorites, and they were both around teaching, which I think has been a really fun thing that we've explored more this year. So the first was with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Weiss around bedside rounding, and I actually don't even work in the hospital anymore, but it was I, I really loved his approach of asking staff members and nurses and patients if they recognized trainees and how well they knew them and if they understood their role, because I think that really got to the point of kind of the hidden curriculum of, of how much it matters to really have that relationship with our patients. And um, if if we're really getting to know our patients well, our patients know who we are. And I think that was a really interesting way of keeping an eye on that. The other one I really loved was um, becoming a PGY3 with the, the chief residents from Walter Reed. I think they were an awesome bunch and had a lot to share. So I would definitely recommend listening to that one as well. This is Rahul Ganatra, and I'm the Hot Cakes Journal Club enthusiast for the Curbsiders. One of my favorite episodes from the past year is episode 134 with Dr. Thomas Finucane, because it has more pearls than an oyster farm. Among them are recognizing our tendency to ignore the things we can't easily identify or measure, even if they are important. What a great lesson for critical appraisal. I'm Rami Fathi. I'm a producer with the Curbsiders, and my favorite episode of the past year has been Things We Do For No Reason, Part 2, namely uh, the section on DocuSafe, which uh, definitely changed the way that I um, treat constipation in my patients. Hey, Curbsiders. This is Renee Diverstall, your Cashlack Pocus Chief. I am super excited to tell you one of my favorite highlights of 2019 was just the pure impact of Curbsider Nation while running courses at Cashlack West for American College of Physicians and elsewhere. So many people, whether residents, mid, early, late career faculty, students came up to me and said, I'm here because I heard the Curbsiders episode. So number one, major props to y'all for spreading the POCUS love. Number two, I enjoyed so many episodes this year, but one of my favorite single quotes or pearls came from um, episode number 181, the multimorbidity games with Josh Wee. And I loved the quote. He said, if I could teach polypharmacy, it would be using the game Jenga. The question is, should you add one more medication? That fear you have when you pull out that block and put it on top is how most people should think about medications in older adults. Be just a little more scared. So I'm currently on the Gen Med wards out here at Cashlack West, and uh, 
I wish that more people lived by this rule. So thanks, Dr. Wee, for that awesome tip. And thanks to all of the Curbsiders Nation for a great year for POCUS. Hi, this is Sarah Fadie Roberts. I'm a producer with the Curbsiders. And I wanted to share a reflection from 2019 and talk a little bit about how amazing the chest conference was in October. Um, and as folks perhaps know from listening to some of the recap episodes and some of our interviews, we had a really fantastic group of people there. And we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Quinn Capers, Dr. Christine Wan, and then recording recap episodes with these just truly remarkable, impressive fellows, physicians, um, people who are actively changing the world and, and changing their field. And as someone who is an aspiring physician um, about to apply to med school, that was very meaningful to me personally, to be able to interact with uh, all of these brilliant minds. And also to meet the Curbsiders team. You know, I, I finally got to meet Matt and Stuart and Paul and Leah. And um, unfortunately, I haven't met Chris yet, but hopefully in 2020. Um, and I, I just wanted to share that because I, I think that the connections that we make in the, the journey of medical education um, is is equally as important, I think, to the sort of academic component. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is that the the real CME opportunity was the, the friendships that we made along the way. Um, anyway, Happy New Year. Thank you for an amazing year with the Curbsiders and wishing you the best holiday season. Hi, this is Dr. Shreya Trevetti. I am a correspondent on the Curbsiders. And instead of a favorite uh, pearl of the year, I wanted to give a shout out to some of the favorite behind the scenes times of the Curbsiders. And it probably has to be at ACP and Gym where we were hanging out in the quote unquote writer's room eating Emmy's banana bread and joking with Justin about shady punchlines. Um, that was that was such a, a great time. Um, and I'm also very grateful to Leah and Matt. Uh, particularly, it's been a blessing to have someone else to talk to about running a podcast. It is no easy feat and um, very hard to navigate creative work in the realm of academia, trying to figure out how to appropriately be valued or compensated fairly for what you bring to the table. And so it's been a tough few months and just uh, very appreciative of time to reflect and, and be thankful for the team and the community we have on Twitter and um, the, the community that reminds us about self-compassion and advocating for each other. And so, um, what a great year, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Take care. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Yeah. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. <laughs> that is correct, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we still need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts and Chris the Chewy Man Jew, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chewy Man Jew <laughs> on Facebook and here. As I know at the top of the show, the Curbsiders have produced nearly 60 episodes this last year, but we could not have done it with our excellent team. Yes, we, Matt, Paul, and Stuart have led the way and have been great leaders on this, but we also have had more than 20 active members and dozens of other contributors. We've had beautiful graphics from the likes of Beth Garbs Garbatelli, Hannah Abrams, and just inspiring 
original works of art from Kate Grant. Um, we've had you know inspiring conversations with guests like Kim- Dr. Kimberly Manning, Dr. Reshma Jaxi, Dr. Avia Glasser, Dr. Abby Spencer, and more. And we've caught up with old friends like Dr. Joel Toth, Dr. Alan Dow, and Dr. Renee Diverstal. We could not have done it with all without all your help, and we want to thank I want to thank everyone for their for their great work this year. I have been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Yes, he has. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Beth Garb Garbatelli. And I've been Dr. Cyrus Askin. Elena Gibson here. And I have been Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. This has been Hannah R. Abrams. This has been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Kate Elizabeth Grant. And this has been Leah Witt. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoybein. This has been Nora Plout Toronto. I'm Rahul Ganatra, and I hope you enjoyed this Journal Club sandwich. I'm Rami Fassi. And I have been Dr. Shreya Shreddy. This has been Sarah Fady Roberts, and I wish you a very happy start to your new year. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frankwater, reminding you that Stuart Kent Brigham uh, composed this wonderful theme music that you are hearing right now. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you. Goodbye. Happy New Year. <laughs>